Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all our podcasts on SoundCloud and at IASLC.org in the newsroom. I'm your host, Dr. Stephen Lin. Hello, this is Lung Cancer Considered, the official podcast of the IASLC. I'm Dr. Stephen Liu, Director of Thoracic Oncology at Georgetown University. In this episode of Lung Cancer Considered, we will discuss the first-line treatment options for EGFR mutant non-small cell lung cancer. There have been some major updates with two large Phase three trials reading out in the second half of 2023, and it's given thoracic oncologists and patients a lot to think about. To help put these data in perspective, I'm joined by two expert thoracic medical oncologists. First, Dr. Natasha Lale, Professor of Medicine at the University of Toronto, the Lung Medical Oncology Lead at the Princess Margaret Cancer Center, the OSI Pharmaceuticals Foundation Chair in Cancer New Drug Development, and member of the Board of Directors for ISLC. Natasha, thank you for joining us today. Thanks so much, Stephen. Delighted to be here. I'm also pleased to be joined by Dr. Tom Newsom-Davis, Consultant in Medical Oncology at Chelsea and Westminster Hospital in London, and Chair-Elect for the British Thoracic Oncology Group, or BTOG. Tom, thanks for being here today. Thank you very much for inviting me. Now, our focus today is on metastatic non-small cell lung cancer with one of the common sensitizing EGFR mutations. And so that means an exon 19 deletion or the exon 21 L858R point mutation. The presence of one of these EGFR mutations, as we know, defines a unique subtype of lung cancer. And this is really where targeted therapy for lung cancer was born. You know, we've known for decades now that EGFR tyrosine kinase inhibitors are particularly effective in this subset of lung cancer and are the preferred initial treatment, targeted therapy, more effective and less toxic than chemotherapy. We also know that immunotherapy, not effective or an appropriate first-line option. Over the years, first-line EGFR TKIs like erlotinib and jafitinib, second-gen TKIs like afatinib, dacomitinib, have given way to third-generation EGFR TKIs, and the approved preferred option, at least in the U.S., is osimertinib. Osimertinib approved by the U.S. FDA as first-line therapy April 18, 2018, based on the FLORA trial. Uh, Tom, since this is our point of reference, for the listeners, could you summarize the FLORA trial? Yeah, of course. Happy to. Um, It's extraordinary, isn't it, that it's five years since this came out. It seems much more recent. And I think FLORA really was one of those studies which did change practice. So to remind people, the original data was coming out around 2018, and we had an update in uh, late 2019, that the last world lung before COVID hit, in fact. So this was a, a double-blind study. Uh, it's a phase three. It's an international study. And it was very simply um, of the these common EGFR mutations you mentioned, Stephen, and patients either received the first or second generation drugs, the gefitinib or allotinib, uh, that was one arm, and they are randomized one-to-one to receive that or ozimertinib as their first-line treatment. About 500 patients were involved in this large study with a primary endpoint of uh, progression-free survival. Overall survival was an endpoint, and it was a key secondary endpoint. So the kind of the first headline news I remember us hearing, I think it was about 2018, was a progression-free survival benefit of ozimertinib over gefitinib or alotinib with a hazard ratio of 0.46. So pretty impressive numbers. If you look at the medians, it went up from around 10 months median PFS to around 18. So you know, well, I think we all felt at that stage a very significant improvement. We began to see a 
perhaps a bit of a sub uh, subgroup coming out. We noticed that there was a greater PFS benefit in the non-Asian cohort. Response rates are fairly similar, actually. We, we, as you say, we know these drugs are active, don't we? So response rate was 80% in the osimertinib arm compared to 76 in the gifitinib or allotinib arm. The overall survival data, I think, was the thing that really convinced people, wasn't it? And that came out in, in 2019. And yeah, the uh, OS for osimertinib was just over 38 months. And the OS for gefitinib or allotinib was 31.8 months. And that hazard ratio was 0.79. And again, I think that was felt to be a, a clinically and statistically kind of meaningful result. In that OS data, we did begin to see again a couple of subgroups coming out. And I guess we might discuss this a bit later. Greater benefit in non-Asian patients perhaps less benefit in patients with an L858R mutation compared to those with the um, Exxon 21. Um, so Exxon 19, I'm so sorry. So that was a kind of the headline data. And I think that PFS data and the OS data really solidified that. And when the drug became available in the first line, where it was available, it really is, it assumed dominance in that first line setting. I guess the one other thing just to pick out in that data was evidence of CNS activity, so it's a brain activity. Uh, we saw an increase in progression-free survival uh, for CNS disease with osimertinib over gefitinib or allotinib with a hazard ratio of 0.48. I think that's, that's really key, actually, because we know how difficult the management of brain metastases are and, and how distressing they are for patients to have. So that's really where, where the data is, and I think that's why Osimertinib asserted itself as, as the dominant player where it was available in the first-line treatment of lung cancer until perhaps very recently. Yeah, so clearly our, our global standard, I think, for many years, uh, you're right, it does seem longer than five years, and it's one of those very delightful situations where we have a drug that's more potent, more active, and less toxic, uh, at least in the study. But Natasha, can you sort of comment on this as, as the standard now, what, what's your personal experience been with first-line osimertinib? Does it live up to the floor results? And, and maybe what are the limitations of using that in a frontline setting? Osimertinib has really helped us transform first-line therapy. Yesterday in clinic, as I was going through all of the cases, you know, so many of our patients are doing so well on osimertinib uh, in, in the first-line setting. And so it really has been terrific. You know, our real-world experience has been similar, which is very surprising to what we see in the trial. And when you look out there at what's published from real world experience, you know, response rates might be a tiny bit lower, anywhere from 60 to 70%. Progression-free survival, though, by and large, is really anywhere from 16 to 19 months. So very similar to what we saw in the trial, very similar survival. Um, and so in the real world, you know, it, it has been great. I will say that some of the challenges that we come up against in clinic it's a pill. It's daily. It's much easier than many other things that we ask patients to take. But I think it is something that patients need to think about and adjust to. And in particular, skin toxicity, I think, is a challenge. It's much better than many or all of the other kinase inhibitors. Uh, but again, it still is a challenge. You know, dry skin, some patients get mucositis, some patients do get rash. Um, but other toxicities are really very uncommon in the clinic, interstitial lung disease, transaminitis. These are really um, very, very uncommon. I guess in, in my practice, one of the challenges is 
we go in, we discuss with patients that they're going to have this fantastic response and they're going to be on this for a year and a half or more. And then what happens when that's not the case? What happens when they have stable disease? Should we radiate? Are these the patients where we should think about doing better? Uh, I also think in my practice, I probably have a larger proportion of patients that want the dose adjusted at some point, uh, probably higher than what we saw in the trial. Again, mostly for skin toxicity, um, but very similar, you know, a very low rate of discontinuation intracranially, you know, it, it does work. I think we're always so impressed when patients do well without radiotherapy that present with upfront brain metastasis. And I think we're also learning more and more that, uh, that we need to intercalate these two therapies. Yeah, those are great points. And I think that now that we've had many years using this as our first line drug, we're also seeing a pretty wide range of responses. I think back in 2018, when we were used to frontline targeted therapy working for eight, nine months, to see a PFS of a year and a half was was quite remarkable. But now I feel like looking at ALK, where our PFS approaches three, five years uh, with some agents, we, we really want something more. And that brings us up to 2023, where, where we did see some combination strategies looking to improve upon that frontline standard. It was at the 2023 World Conference in Lung Cancer meeting in Singapore. Our colleague, Dr. Passiani, presented the results from Flora 2. Now, that looked at the addition of standard platinum doublet chemotherapy to first-line osimertinib. Now, as we know, this was a positive trial, improving progression-free survival quite significantly. Tasha, can you provide some details on, on the design and the efficacy of this approach? So at the World Conference in Lung Cancer in 2023, uh, Dr. Yana presented the results of FLORA2, and this study really built on our previous knowledge that adding chemotherapy to gefitinib improved overall survival in, in two trials. And so the question, of course, was, could we use a third generation, you know, our best TKI, and what would chemotherapy do in that setting? So patients were randomized one-to-one to receive either osimertinib, and pemetrexid and carboplatin, standard first-line chemotherapy, or cisplatin. They got four cycles of treatment and then continued on osimertinib and maintenance pemetrexid. And these patients uh, all had non-squamous, non-small cell lung cancer. The other group of patients were randomized to osimertinib alone. It was open label. And the primary endpoint was investigator-assessed progression-free survival, which is, of course, a very interesting endpoint. And, and we saw, not unexpectedly, that progression-free survival was significantly improved when chemotherapy was added. The hazard ratio was 0.62, both for investigator assessed, but also by blinded independent central review. And I think because it's an open label study, actually blinded independent central review is, is the better outcome. Uh, and even interestingly, the, the, the data were similar for both. The radiologists actually thought that the patients did better than the investigators did, which was very interesting in this study. Uh, a median of 29.4 months with chemotherapy plus osimertinib compared to 19.9 months with osimertinib. So very similar performance of osimertinib compared to the FLORA study or the original study and a marked improvement with osimertinib. Response rate was similar, not surprisingly. We also saw this in FLORA, 83% with the addition of chemotherapy compared to 76%. But as you might expect, the duration of response was much longer with chemotherapy added, 24 months compared to 15.3 months, that latter number a little bit shorter than in the FLORA trial. But again, uh, you know, I wouldn't say that the osimertinib arm underperformed. I would say that, you know, this is a, a primary randomized comparison. 
we did see some survival data. The data only have 27% maturity. The survival hazard is 0.90 and crossed unity. So it was non-significant. And these curves were very, very close together. Yeah, thanks, Natasha. I think you the, the way you phrase that is right. It's sort of not surprisingly, we add an active agent. We see an improvement in PFS. That's kind of what I think all of us would have expected just looking at the study design. Uh, but we also know that comes at the cost of more toxicity when we're adding more drugs. So maybe Tom, I'll, I'll ask you, can you talk a bit about the safety, the toxicity, uh, the consequence of adding chemotherapy in this frontline setting? Absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I agree with all Natasha's comments. And I, and I think with the risk of sounding wise after the event, uh, this was a study I think you could have hung your hat on was going to be a positive study for, for the PFS um, uh, primary endpoint. But I think the real key is is safety and adverse events. And um, you know, listeners will not be surprised to hear that when you add chemotherapy to osimertinib, you get more side effects. And Natasha really clearly described how well osimertinib is, is tolerated as a single agent. We know that from huge experience now, and you do get some mucocutaneous side effects, but they're usually tolerable. And even if they're not, it tends to be lower grade and, and, and one can and mitigate those. But what you found in Flora 2, if you looked at the osimertinib and chemo arm, was an increase in grade three or more adverse events. So 64% of patients got grade three or more adverse events of any cause compared to 27% in the osimertinib arm. So really, yes, it's, it's an open label study, but you know, clearly that is a big difference. You can break that down a bit more. You can say, okay, well, what about the uh, grade five, those leading to death? Okay, so the numbers are, are reassuringly small, uh, 7%. This is all cause um, compared to 3% in the osimertinib arm. So again, higher in the combination arm. Um, if you look at treatment, AEs le leading to discontinuation, again, in the combination arm, it's higher. It's 48% versus 6%. So I think that says to us that when you add in chemotherapy to osimertinib, and no one who has used any of these drugs will be surprised to hear, you have more side effects. What were those side effects? Well, they are the ones one would expect when you add chemotherapy to osimertinib. So you get myelosuppression, you get some constipation predominantly from the antiemetics, you're getting some nausea, some vomiting, um, a little bit more increase in things like liver dysfunction. So that is the real key, I think. And um, when we're going to think about the benefits that Natasha has described, we, we have to see that in context of, of the adverse events. Giving osimertinib to someone as a tablet, a single drug, makes an awful situation, their diagnosis, slightly better. Because you say, here's a tablet, and just take it every day. And um, they are often, as, as Natasha said, well for many months, hopefully up to 18 months, even more. Um, and they have a very good quality of life. They can get on with what they are doing. When you're adding in chemotherapy, you're going to impact on that. You're going to impact on that on adverse events. You will impact on that in quality of life. I am guessing we haven't seen the, the full data of that. And there was interesting data presented um, also this autumn, asking patients who've been through both sides of the study, what would your preference be, just a tablet or tablet plus chemo? And the great majority of patients said, just a tablet. And so I think when we're thinking about the benefits of treatment, we also have to think about the side effects and patient preference and, and the impacts of our treatments on that. 
Well said, Tom. I think that that last part's an important one that's not really captured in our, our tables in the, the New England Journal paper is really a change in lifestyle that you go from taking a once a day mm. pill mm. to really coming in being tethered almost to an infusion center, coming in every three weeks. Uh, and also, I think it makes it difficult to to plan things because if there are delays, if, if the counts are low, things get rescheduled. It, it really does change, I think, the the quality of life in ways that can be difficult to measure, especially in a trial like this, because you're only enrolling patients that are agreeing to sign up for this possibility. Uh, and so I think that that's really difficult to quantify. Overall, as you said, increased efficacy, longer progression-free survival, greater toxicity, another requirement for an IV infusion every three weeks. So let's start with just sort of a direct question, Tom, should this Flora 2 be the new standard of care? Uh, I'm going to change one word from the to a. I think it's a standard of care. I don't think it's for everyone. Um, I saw a, a patient earlier this week with a new diagnosis of um, EGFR mutated lung cancer. They are in their late 70s. Um, they are pretty good for their late 70s. But this is someone who has a couple of other medical comorbidities and chemo and osimertinib is going to massively impact on their quality of life. I think it's going to give them more side effects. I don't think it's for them. I think osimertinib is for them. But I think that I think there is a role for Flora too, and I think the role is going to be in your younger patients. Um, I think we need to think about patients, certain subsets, maybe those with uh, brain metastases. We seen some data about Flora too there. Maybe those with the L858R mutation, which I mentioned in the original Flora study, did a little bit less well on single-agent osimertinib. And also, which we haven't really touched on, actually, patients with co-mutation. So other mutations, either EGFR or non-EGFR, which might make you think, maybe these guys won't do so well on osimertinib alone. So maybe I might be thinking about something else. So I think in that situation, Flora 2 is definitely an option. But I don't think that osimertinib alone is is by any means uh, going to be thrown in the bin. Yeah, Natasha, your thoughts on Flora 2? Should this be our standard of care? Should it be the standard of care for certain subsets of patients? How are you going to use this data? I agree completely that this is not for everyone. It's probably not even for the majority of patients, but it is important. It does improve thus far progression-free survival. And I think the big question about whether this will be for everyone, just like Flora, is going to be uh, reliant on the demonstration of of overall survival benefit. Uh, until then, you know, I think that question will always be who can sequence and and who can't. And so, just as Tom highlighted, there there were some subgroups, and I, I didn't review them earlier, but there there was a suggestion that perhaps patients who had brain metastases at baseline did better. Uh, slightly poorer performance status patients did better with the addition of chemotherapy, and I. Uh, you know, I think both men and women benefited. Patients with L858R alterations benefited. Smokers and non-smokers seem to benefit similarly. But just as Thomas mentioned, you know, should we be looking at all those patients in the flora study or flora type approach who don't do well? Patients with concomitant TP53 alterations, smokers, patients with L858R alterations, perhaps just like immunotherapy, patients with a heavy burden of disease, patients with brain metastasis, and should these patients have uh, an even more detailed discussion about upfront chemotherapy plus targeted therapy? So I, I agree. I think this is for subsets. And the real question is, who are these subsets uh, versus who can sequence? Uh, 
You know, it's very interesting at ASCO this year, Stephen, we heard about uh, a very interesting study from investigators in Japan where patients with advanced EGFR mutant lung cancer received two months of targeted therapy. And I think they had about 100 patients or more that received osimertinib in the latter part of the trial. And then they were randomized either to just continue and only have osimertinib or to have three cycles of platinum doublet chemotherapy and then just go back on maintenance. So when you think about it, this is really the ideal, right? Just a little bit of chemotherapy to wipe out any resistant clones. But what was interesting was that uh, it really didn't improve outcomes. And so, you know, I think there is something to this continuous chemotherapy. And again, it's about targeting patients that have that upfront residual resistance or at least getting on emerging resistance early. Thanks for bringing that up, Natasha. I don't think we talk about that study enough. It was a really important trial. And the hypothesis was, just as you said, if we sterilize these clones now, OC has sort of a a clear path to just keep working. And that just wasn't the case, that the benefit really was transient, suggesting that the model in in Flora 2 of maintenance, long-term chemotherapy really is necessary for this benefit. And I think that changes the, the calculus a little bit. You know, Tom, Natasha mentioned survival here. And when we look at these CAM curves, they really do overlap. If we fast forward a few years in the future, if there is no survival difference here, you know, does that change how you look at the results from Flora 2? Yeah, I, I think if, if you ask an oncologist what they think, we'll always say more mature survival follow-up. That's our, that's our standard reply, right? Um, I, I think it is really key. Um I am always very mindful that what we really need for our patients more than anything is multiple lines of treatments that work well. And I'm always a little bit wary of shoving everything in the first line with additional toxicity and additional cost and the concern about the latter making it not available to everyone. I think if the overall survival benefit is unimpressive, I think it argues against it. There would still be that argument Natasha mentioned for those subgroups you might pick out. But I think you do want to make sure if you are using your your best two drugs, chemo and Aussie, up front together, you want to be really sure that you're providing an overall survival benefit, not just um, providing a transient benefit that doesn't doesn't persist. One thinks that we, we have to be a little smart about how we deliver a tool uh, uh, like this not for everybody. I've heard you both mention that, but we don't know who it's for. And when we think of these commutations, these poor prognostic groups, it's not quite the same as saying that they do better with this approach. You know, we're still early on. We're waiting for more data to leak out, but let's sort of predict the future. Natasha, are there other ways that we can identify who might need a strategy like this? There's a terrific trial that's ongoing uh, led by Dr. Helena Yu, where she randomizes patients after an initial month of osimertinib. If their cell-free DNA in plasma level, if that falls, they continue on osimertinib. Presumably, they're going to have a very good outcome on single-agent therapy. But if it doesn't, she then randomizes patients to add chemotherapy or not. And so I think I think it's a it's a mini flora too in in a much more selected population where we know these patients are really at high risk. So again, you know, my prediction will be that we'll see a PFS benefit for sure in that group of patients. And then of course, these other patients, these patients who do clear their CTDNA, it would be 
very interesting to ask the question, do we add anything but toxicity in that group? So to expand on that, and and it wouldn't surprise me over the next year or two to see people using much more in terms of liquid biopsy and ctDNA clearance to figure out who needs escalation and who doesn't. Now, does that address the issue of should we give all of these drugs up front to eliminate any potentially resistant clones? Uh, you know, I think I think we still don't know that and we'll need to see the survival data. And, and I guess I'm also reminded, you know, I, I prefer an upfront TKI approach for almost all of my patients. However, it is very hard to convince patients to go on chemotherapy later. And there's a lot of... Um, pessimism in amongst the GFR uh, community about second line chemotherapy. And so maybe, maybe upfront is the way, but I agree with you, Stephen, it would be great to have a better idea of who needs what and when, and hopefully uh, tools like liquid biopsy can help with this. I love this uh, use of liquid biopsy as an early pharmacodynamic marker to tell us if we're on the right track. Uh, we look at our CT scans and they're such powerful tools, but I think that we all know they're actually quite crude and you know they detect things fairly late in the game. These are sort of this wealth of data that's coming out, all of these new paradigms to consider. And just as we as a group are digesting Flora 2, how this should change our approach, our outlook to EGFR mutant lung cancer, we're hit with like a month later, the results from another phase three trial in the same space, the Mariposa trial. And so our colleague, Dr. Byung Cho, presented these data in Madrid at ESMO 2023. This was a phase three study with three arms, but it primarily compared osimertinib alone to the combination of amivantamab, which is an IV EGFR met by specific antibody, and lazertinib, which is another third generation EGFR TKI. Uh, Natasha, for the listeners, could you summarize the, the design, the efficacy of Mariposa? Thanks, Stephen. So this was another very exciting trial presented at ESMO this year. This is a phase three randomized study in patients with advanced EGFR sensitizing mutant lung cancer that were good performance status. And patients were randomized in a two to two to one fashion, either to amivantamab and lazertinib. There were 429 patients on that arm osimertinib, which was blinded. There were 429 patients on that arm. And then there was a smaller group randomized to lazertinib, 216 patients, to really help tease out the contribution of lazertinib to the amylaser combination. The primary endpoint of this study was progression-free survival by blinded independent radiology review. And what it showed was that amivantabab and lazertinib as a combination had better progression-free survival with a hazard of 0.70 compared to osimertinib. And the median PFS was 23.7 months for the combination and 16.6 months for osimertinib, which, you know, I think is not too dissimilar from the FLORA study data. Lazertinib compared to osimertinib, we also saw some data on that. And the progression-free survival was actually very similar to what was seen with osimertinib. Uh, the median PFS with lazertinib was 18.5 months. And these curves really overlapped. I think it'll be interesting in future to hear a little bit more about lazertinib and how it compares to osimertinib in terms of toxicity and CNS activity. 
Now, this study did include serial brain imaging with MRI for all patients. And so, of course, one of the questions people ask was, is that why we were able to de detect a PFS difference? Although I think many of us really think this, this is an excellent way to conduct the study. Certainly, the progression-free survival outcome was similar at a hazard of 0.69 for patients with and without brain metastasis. So no real difference there. We also saw some very exciting survival data. The survival data are not mature, but with a median follow-up of 22 months and a lot of censoring, we did see a small difference start to emerge in favor of amivantamab lizertinib. Not significant. The hazard ratio is 0 0.80 and the confidence interval crosses one, but again, very interesting. And I think this is potentially a game changer if it's positive with further follow-up. But some interesting differences here, really a different approach. Uh, this is, I think accurately, a chemotherapy-free regimen but that does not mean it's toxicity-free. So, Tom, we see the addition of an active agent significantly improving progression-free survival. It's going to come at the cost of more toxicity. Can you walk us through that toxicity? Absolutely. And I, I found this a really interesting study, and, and we had that amazing presidential session in ESMO with this these new standards of care coming through. Um, we, we were one of those sites which were involved in, in Mariposa, so I've, I've seen the data and I've also seen it firsthand. You're absolutely right um, that that benefit, which Natasha um, describes so eloquently, c comes at a cost, and the cost is is more toxicity. My, my job in this podcast is to talk about toxicity, I think. Um, so as you mentioned before, ozimertin, a great drug, um, not without any toxicities, but we are very familiar with them. We can see and we and we can expect what they're going to get. You, you get more when you add amibantamab. Now, some of the listeners may know that because they may be using this drug for their EGFR exon 20 insertion, rare EGFR mutation patients in the um, second line setting. And people may know from that or from reading that you get infusion related reactions with amivantamab. They're very common. Uh, they occur within the first, usually one or uh, two cycles and they're manageable and, and they go away and you don't usually come back. But it's certainly more of an issue. And in the study, about two thirds of patients got a form of a fusion reactive reaction. And of course, compare that to the fact that if you're not on this, you're, you're just having a tablet, right? Um, there are also an increase in the expected EGFR mucocutaneous side effects. So there is an increase in rash, goes up from about 30% with uh, ozimertinib to about 55 to 60% with. Uh, the Aussie and amibantamab, and with that goes an increase in the patients with higher grade, grade three rash. There's um, diarrhea seems to be perhaps no worse, but uh, other rashes, acneform rash, stomatitis a little bit higher as well. Um, and you're having a slight increase in what some people might call the paper toxicity. So increase in liver function test, AST, ALT. The other side effects are more to do with the MET inhibitions so away from the EGFR bit. And people may know from use of other MET inhibitors that the thing you really get with these drugs is peripheral edema and low um, serum albumin. And edema is quite difficult, actually. You know, it's not something that responds very well to throwing around diuretics. And although it can be mild, it can be uncomfortable. It can be unsightly. So as we had in, in the previous with Flora too, yes, you definitely have this improvement in benefit, but uh, you have an improvement, as so you have an increase in AEs as well. How serious are these? Well, I guess if you look at the serious AEs, 
in the trial. It was 50% just under in the AMI plus laser arm and 33% in the Aussie only arm. If you look at those causing death, there's basically no difference, but there is an increase in dose interruptions in the amivantamab and laser arm. So 83% had dose interruptions compared to under 40% with Aussie. There's increase in dose reductions. Uh, almost 60% of patients had dose reductions in the combination arm. And discontinuation rates were basically almost, well, just over twice as many patients discontinuing any agent in AMI and laser compared to Aussie. So they're not just things which are on a graph or on a piece of paper saying, well, you know, you've had more toxicity. They are impacting on um, how patients tolerate them and able to, to put up with treatments over time. I think these toxicities are, are different. And while chemotherapy has it, its known toxicity, I think they're ones we're a little more comfortable with. A lot of paper toxicities here, as you mentioned, paronychia, rash. The infusion reactions, I think, are less of an issue because it really is just with that first dose with the edema and then the venous thrombolic events. Um, and so when we think of you know, this approach, it's more than just adding the infusion. You're also adding really anticoagulation um, and you're adding aggressive medicines to to get control of the the cutaneous toxicity. So really it's sort of a, a package, but that's balanced with a significant improvement in progression-free survival. And as Natasha mentioned, really a trend towards a survival benefit. And you know, that's certainly influenced by a lot of things, the lack of crossover to amivantamide, which isn't available uh, in the second line setting at the time the study was done. But my prediction is that this probably will be positive for survival. And I don't know how that changes our perspective. Natasha, you know, what are your thoughts on Mariposa relative to osimertinib and flora and relative to osimertinib and chemotherapy and flora too? Thanks, Stephen. I think everyone was very excited about this trial because it represented another chemo-free approach. Uh, I think the challenges, though, have been really well highlighted. There's a very high risk of uh, thrombotic events. And so anticoagulant prophylaxis is recommended. So really, patients are starting off on three drugs. Uh, amivantamab, which is intravenous, just like chemotherapy, uh, the lizertinib and anticoagulation. So, you know, I think it's challenging. And I guess the real question is, again, what do we gain versus what do we sacrifice? And so there's a clear progression-free survival benefit. There's a suggestion of improved overall survival benefit. You know, will all of the patients on the standard therapy arm, you know, what will these patients cross over to? Will they cross over to chemotherapy? Will they get amylase or in some other form? Um, and so I think toxicity really becomes a big question, right? We're sacrificing the convenience of oral therapy and this regimen does have toxicity. Plus there's the anticoagulation. So I think it's, it's a lot of complexity uh, added to the first line space. So just like Flora 2, I think this represents a new option, but again, if we knew who really benefited, you know, could we personalize by met protein expression. Maybe these are the patients that do the best on this as an upfront approach. Uh, you know, do patients with brain metastases do better on this than others? Or or do younger patients do better? Uh, we knew that these patients were less likely to get uh, thromboembolic events, and maybe these patients can have shorter duration anticoagulation. So again, you know, so many unanswered questions, who benefits? But I agree, if this shows a significant survival improvement, it, it will be a challenge to move from, you know, the current very comfortable osimertinib alone space to uh, to these newer and more complex combinations. Tom, let me uh, throw another wrinkle into this. You know, when we look at amivantamab, it's given intravenously weekly for the first month and then every two weeks 
Although in the Exxon 20 space, in, in the Papillon study, it was every three weeks, and so maybe that's a possibility. But we know that there's some ongoing investigation with a subcutaneous formulation. Tom, does that make a, a difference here? If, if amvantamib were subcutaneous, does that change how you look at it? I think it does. Um, absolutely. So I'm sure every person listening has pressure on their chemotherapy units. Now, that's a good thing, right? Because it means people are living longer, they're living better. We're doing more treatments and that has to be positive. But there are huge practical implications. And you're absolutely right, which is if every patient uh, with a new diagnosis of EGFR-mutated lung cancer is going to be having intravenous amibantamab, that's a huge impact, not only on the patients, but also on the units. I think the subcutaneous formulation is very interesting. I think it will presumably dramatically mitigate the infusion reactor reactions. It will make it easier. Our breast oncology colleagues give Herceptin subcutaneously in the community. Why couldn't you do that? I think that maybe goes some way to restoring a really important aspect, which we haven't seen the data on yet, which I look forward to, and that is quality of life and patient-reported outcomes. Now, these are properly collected in, in modern studies. And I think it's going to be really interesting to see that because my experience, fitting with what Natasha said at the very beginning of the podcast is when someone is diagnosed with an EGFR metastatic um, lung cancer with ozimertinib, you can have really good quality of life for many, many months. You're not coming up to see the doctor very much. You're picking up your tablets, you're continuing. And I would argue that the very best quality of life they have in their entire patient journey are those first few months hopefully year and a half, two years, even longer if, if, if they're lucky. Then when things progress, and as also as Natasha said, when you try to approach the second line chemotherapy, people are understandably reluctant to do that because they've been on this tablet for so long, feeling great and just taking a pill a day and not seeing me very much, which clearly is a good thing. Um, <laughs> and quality of life does dip down, doesn't it? Because suddenly you're coming up, you're having blood tests, you're there every three weeks, you've got travel to and from the cancer center, these all impact on quality of life. And so I think that that first line treatment of all treatments are the one where quality of life and patient reported outcomes are absolutely key. And if you do have an agent like amivantamab, great if we give it subcutaneously. And if, if perhaps that doesn't work out or it's not available, maybe giving it in the second line where anyway they're going to be coming up for chemo. Maybe one keeps it there more. And I think that patient reported outcome and, and the patient view on this should really be guiding how we discuss this with our patients. You know, I, I'm hoping for a future where if it is subcutaneous, as I think several of our agents eventually will be, is this something that we can even give at home? Can we arrange for, for this yeah. to be delivered without even coming in, which, yeah. which would be good. Although, Tom, I'm sure patients love coming in to see you. I'm sure it's the highlight. <laughs> but <laughs> point taken, you know, driving through London every three weeks, I think that uh, there's there's something to be said about maybe us going to the patient, and I hope that the future is not too far away. You know, Natasha, when we look at this relative to Flora 2, it's hard not to think of these in the same breath, but we know from that Japanese study we talked about that giving a short burst of chemotherapy, really that doesn't lead to, to perpetual long-term benefit, doesn't alter necessarily the natural history in the way that we hoped. But is is the same true for amivantamab? Could, could giving some inhibition up front eliminate clones that are destined to cause trouble in the future? Can we apply sort of the same logic there? Thanks, Steve. I, I think it's a great question and, and really gets at this idea of minimizing patient burden and maximizing quality of life and, and reducing unnecessary symptoms and cost. But I don't think we yet know. We, we did see some nice data earlier that 
with the subcutaneous version, we really drive down the risk of infusion-related events. I believe it was 16% compared to the 67% that we're used to seeing with the intravenous formulations. So I do think that's promising. I agree with you. Uh, a subcutaneous infusion that doesn't necessarily require a hospital visit is a great idea, but we don't yet, I think, have data looking at shorter schedules. So it's still until disease progression. And I don't think we know, but I, I think it's a great question. And maybe that's the next step. How can we uh, abbreviate some of these treatment schedules to really maximize patient comfort without sacrificing benefit? I think this is an exciting time for EGFR because we have more drugs. And for such a long time, it was osimertinib only. And we were dealing with sort of what to do after osimertinib resistance, so polyclonal, so heterogeneous, so challenging. And now moving things in the frontline setting, we we have Flora 2 data, we have Mariposa data. I'll acknowledge the the Ramos trial that was led by our colleague at MD Anderson, Dr. Shuning Lee, uh, that looked at osimertinib plus the VEGFR2 antibody remucirumab. And that showed that adding that VEGFR2 also improved PFS there with a hazard ratio of 0.55. Uh, you know, we've seen prior data suggesting that that targeting VEGF can improve PFS, though questionable impact on overall survival. And we have newer other active drugs, such as antibody drug conjugates. A lot of questions about optimizing therapy. Natasha, we're, we're running close to the end of time. But to close here, what do you think about the future of EGFR mutant non-small cell lung cancer? I, I think what's going to be great is that in this subgroup of patients, we're no longer going to tell them, oh, look, you have this great mutation in your lung cancer. You know, we have treatment X or Y for you. Now we're going to have to be much more thoughtful about that diagnosis. And it's almost like a composite score that we're going to need going forward. You know, what about your commutations? How do we factor in disease burden? How do we factor in some of these predictors of resistance or poor outcome with upfront osimertinib so that you almost have a, a an EGFR sensitizing mutation, class one, class two, class three. And based on that, you can either have single agent therapy and we can use liquid biopsy to monitor how you're doing. You can start with upfront chemotherapy or have it added, or you can start with a combination uh, like we saw in Mariposa. So I I, I think that the, the future, currently we personalize uh, mostly off-label, but we do personalize in the setting of resistance. Now, I think we're going to have an opportunity to personalize the first line. I think the brain is going to be a very important area in which we really focus on what will work best for our patients, who's higher risk or who's lower risk, and also things like commutation, disease burden, and maybe even some other biomarkers that we can really use personalize. We've also seen some great data looking at antibody drug conjugates, I would argue that I was far more impressed this, at this recent ESMO about the performance of ADCs in patients with oncogene-addicted lung cancer, more so than in patients with non-oncogene-addicted lung cancer. So again, who needs these? How do we maximize benefit, minimize toxicity and exposure? You know, these are also very, very promising. So lot, I think lots of personalization and algorithms, and hopefully we'll get the data to actually do that in a smart way over the next year or two. Yeah, I think that's all very... Uh, achievable. And I agree with everything you'd, you'd mentioned there. Tom, anything left? What what do we have to look forward to for, for EGFR mutant lung cancer? Yeah, I, I really like your comment earlier, Stephen. You know, I'm, I'm sure you remember the first patients we treated with EGFR inhibitors and we marveled at the eight to 10 month PFS and now it's 18 months. But actually, we now are correctly not satisfied with that. And we look at our outpatients and say, well, 
why aren't we achieving that? And, and I think the fact that we look at first line EGFR as not being good enough is, is a testament to how far we've come generally. Um, I absolutely agree. I, I, surprisingly, the TROP2 ADCs seem to be the EGFR mutation patients benefiting the most. I'm very interested in that. Um, I'm interested, I'm going to slightly cheat and talk about locally advanced disease. I'm interested in the LORA study, locally advanced osimertinib, for, uh, well, sorry, osimertinib used in the locally advanced setting. Let's try to get prevent people getting to stage four disease. Um, I'm also interested in trying to get drugs which are less expensive and open to everyone. We must always remember the cost of drugs. It doesn't matter how your health system is funded, whether it's insurance-based or socialized or or whatever. Ultimately, society pays for all, all treatments. And I think trying to find drugs which are cheaper and more available, you know, um, all melatonin was one of those among many, I think is also something we should look at because it's no good only some of us having access to the best drugs. We should make sure um, that everyone has access to them. And what an important point, a great place to close here. It's been a great discussion. You know, for years, our treatment algorithm, very straightforward. Uh, now a bit more complicated, but in a good way. And it's exciting to see progress. Hopefully, as, as you both mentioned, we'll see emerging data on biomarkers, subsets. It's a good thing these are big studies because we are going to dice them into very, very small subgroups in the coming years. Uh, you know, I want to thank both of our guests for their wonderful insights and really for all they do in the field of lung cancer. Tom, thanks so much for being with us today. That's my great pleasure. Thank you very much for inviting me. And Natasha, my guest on this episode. Thank you. And thanks to everyone for listening to Lung Cancer Considered, the official ISLC podcast. You can listen to other episodes on SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and on our website, IASLC.org, under Newsroom. We hope that you'll tune in to give us a listen. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Lung Cancer Considered. You can find all our podcasts on our website, www.iaslc.org, in our newsroom or on SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rank, like, and share your favorite episodes with your colleagues. 